Hello and welcome, this is Dr. Tully for History 311, and today we're going to be doing our lecture on uh, Challenges to White Supremacy and the Great Migration. Uh, for the past couple of classes, we talked about Reconstruction, talked about the establishment of Jim Crow-style white supremacy, segregation, all these things. Now we're going to be talking about how people challenge it. How African Americans challenge this new, almost Hydra-like system. Um, in, in classical mythology, the Hydra was a serpent wherever you cut off one of its heads. Actually, I think it was more of a dragon than a serpent. But when you cut off one of its heads, uh, two more grow in its place. And that's kind of how white supremacy was in the United States, not just the South. It might have been more overt in the South, but uh, it still definitely existed throughout the entire country. So with that, uh, just open up your PowerPoint, give a headed look. Uh, you're going to see that first picture of the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, the Tuskegee Institute, you're going to see a picture of that. That's Booker T. Washington's school he established, uh, really focusing on agricultural, vocational uh, education. When vocational, he's pretty meaning normal and religious education. Uh, normal education means teaching people how to become teachers. It is segregated, of course, by uh, gender, by gender, uh, because he's a very traditionalist. So Booker T. Washington's whole thing is don't buck the system. We'll talk about him in just a second. So go on ahead. So race in the progressive movement. I should mention right around the 1890s, 1900s, somewhere around then, you have the birth of what's known as the progressive movement in the United States. Now, last class, we talked about the populist movement and the populist party. That was a very agrarian-based, uh, things like the Farmers Alliance were based in places like Texas and um, uh, Oklahoma, actually Nebraska to a much greater extent. Uh, very, you know, folksy, very low-class, former class. The progressive movement was much more urban, much more um, higher education, uh, more middle and upper classes. It's much more elitist. And they're really focusing on a lot of different social problems that have come about in this time period. Uh, the new America, this new industrialized country, this urbanized country with a lot more immigrants, it's viewed that they cause a lot of problems. A lot of Americans are worried about, well, upper-class Americans, uh, elite, waspy, white Americans, are worried about what they call the loss of, quote-unquote, America. You know, one of the things that white supremacy tried to do in the South was to preserve that pre-Civil War order of race. Um, actually, even making a new order, I should say, where basically it's white above black, Whereas beforehand, it's uh, master above slave. Now it's a more universal one. Uh, but still, changes are occurring with things like the railroad, with things like uh, you know, this new wave of industrialization going on, making you know, millionaires and billionaires out of people who do oil and trains and industries that never really existed before. Uh, same thing with urbanization. Cities are growing across the country. And with these cities, there's you know, some good things, but also some bad things. They're, they're dirty. Sanitation can be a problem. Likewise with immigration, uh, there's the United States has always had immigrants, but now you're having new ways of immigration from places there haven't been immigrants before. This is where you first have your like first uh, like Italian immigrants, your first Irish immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, Jews, Russians, things like that. Not your uh, traditional immigrants beforehand, which are things like uh, you know English people, Irish people, not Irish people, English people, Scots. Uh, white, German people. Uh, I, I know it's weird to say that the Irish and Italians were not considered white in this time period, but they most certainly weren't. And as we've talked about in this class, uh, white is kind of a moving target. What is and isn't considered white at any given time can be a moving target. Uh, 
And so that's where the progressives come in. Uh, they have a lot of different solutions, but their main interest is reform. They want to reform on a societal level. They want to change society by things like laws, by bringing in other things. Uh, a lot of this is a very middle and upper class thing. Uh, a lot of it, it was viewed as whites only within the progressive movements. Uh, still, some black people thought maybe there's a sense, sense of change. You know, maybe because these are elites people, um, there might be more opportunities for black education. Uh, one of these pers people who really thinks that there might be a change, if you go over one slide, is Booker T. Washington. Uh, Booker T. Washington is one of the most important African-Americans around this time period. When we're talking like 1880s, 1890s, uh, Booker T. Washington was viewed as, I don't want to say he was viewed as the leader of African-Americans, but a lot of white people viewed him as the leader of African-Americans. Uh, within the African-American community, he was a much more complicated figure, but a lot of white people think, hey, Booker T. Washington is like the president of black America, for lack of a better term. I know we're oversimplifying, but white folks tend to oversimplify whenever it comes to African-Americans. Booker T. Washington was born a slave. He was born a slave. Uh, wasn't a slave very long. Wasn't a slave very long. Uh, he was only like 10 years old or so whenever uh, the Civil War happened, and that was able to you know, get him. He was able to be freed from slavery, had a chance for education. In 1881, he is task with forming a new school for African-Americans. During Reconstruction, there's a lot of emphasis placed upon African-American education by a lot of different groups, basically saying, hey, you know, now that African-Americans aren't all going to be slaves, we have to figure out what to do for them, what are they going to work, you know, how are they going to fit into American society? Remember, before the Civil War, there's talk of, are we going to get African-Americans in society or not? You know, are they going to be leaving? Are they going to be sending them to Africa or somewhere else? But after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, it's pretty set that, hey, African Americans are going to be staying within the United States, and then they have to figure out a role for them. And Washington's big thing is that we're going to get um, acceptance for African Americans by economic acceptance. He says, basically, if we get economic acceptance, we're going to get social and political acceptance. Um, he's okay with segregation for now. He said, look, we're not going to challenge segregation right this second. What we're going to do is we're going to uh, work within the system. Work within the system. You know, if segregation is what we're given, do what we can. He, he uses like the, not even analogy, but he says things like, if African Americans are given the chance just to be a janitor, you know, only to just push a mop around, well, by God, we're going to push that mop the best we can we're going to be the best mop pushers. And basically, by being the best mop pushers, we're going to build acceptance within the white world. And he actually thinks that this is going to be better in the South. In fact, there's a quote he has, when it comes to business, pure and simple, it is in the South that the Negro is given a man's chance in the commercial world. And he's really talking about this when it comes to immigration. Uh, remember that all these immigrant groups are being brought in. Well, they're not get, being brought in. They are coming in, Irish, um, you know, Italian immigrants. And they're kind of upsetting the social order in the South because they're taking things for less money. And there's talk about maybe we should go with immigrant labor rather than African-Americans when it comes to cheap labor. 
Washington doesn't think that. He's kind of pushing this idea that, uh, you know, for white, for white listeners, that, you know, black people and white people were historically linked. We have a history together. And we're going to build America a lot better than all these new immigrants. Now, this is not saying that Booker T. Washington was anti-immigrant. He wasn't. He was just saying that black people, African Americans, could be a much better source of labor within the South. If you go over one slide, he has a lot of influence, a lot of power. Uh, sorry. Yeah, no, a lot of influence, a lot of power. I don't know why. Sorry, I got a little confused. Um, he's kind of complex. I mean, within the black communities, a lot of people do like him. Um, also, a lot of white business people like him. Uh, a lot of very affluent white business people like him, like your Carnegie's and uh, Baldwin and Rosenwald. Uh, he actually takes money from these white business owners to spend it on African-American education. Now, others people don't really care for him too much within the black community because... Uh, they find a little ambitious, aggressive, opportunistic. He can be kind of calculating and shrewd. Uh, the big thing he did was he, he later built what's called the Tuskegee machine, which actually I'm going to talk about in two slides, so don't worry about that. But he's really good at using the black press. He's very good at using the black press, uh, giving them business advertising for Tuskegee, which I should mention Tuskegee. They really only specialize in a couple types of education. Um, if you go over one slide, now we're going to talk about industrial education. I don't have that here. I'm sorry. I, I, I got a little confused. Industrial training. My bad. Um, sorry, these, these slides are weird. I'm not used to them yet. Uh, his, his, his main influence on Tuskegee is you couldn't just learn anything at Tuskegee. Uh, for instance, if you were to go to Tuskegee um, at this time period, it's different now because I know people who work there. I know historians who work there. But you probably could not attend a history class at the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, same thing with a literature class. He didn't think they were worthwhile endeavors. Uh, he said, basically, how is a black person going to get a job with that? He says, we need to focus on industrial training, getting black people jobs, because if they get jobs, we can get economic stability. Once we get economic stability, then we'll work on that other stuff. Uh, really emphasizes three things. Agriculture, which is, you know, agriculture, you know, making, uh, growing things, farming, things like that. He also really uh, supports religious teaching, uh, teaching black people to have become pastors, things like that. Uh, that's pretty commonplace um, within African-American communities. The pastor is a man of education, also one of very high esteem. And also what's called normal education. Uh, the term normal education went out of vogue probably around the 50s, but before this time, the term normal education, uh, just focus on the first syllable, norms. Uh, it's teaching teachers how to become teachers. And Washington was very, very influential. Uh, he does a lot of political stuff that the public doesn't know about. In fact, most African Americans don't know that he's such a politically connected figure. Um, he is giving money to black colleges and universities all the time. Um, he is also able to do this with white people's money. That is one thing that uh, is a criticism or maybe a praise of Washington is that he could be somewhat, I don't want to say two-faced, but it seems like he's willing to be like kind of conciliatory and dare I say Uncle Tom-esque for white audiences, but then he'll donate money to very radical black causes with the money that he gets from the white people. Uh, this is probably seen no better than his most famous speech, The Atlantic Compromise. Uh, the Atlantic Compromise is a very, 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 very important speech he gives. Probably the one that really puts him on the map. He goes to an exhibition in Atlanta. It's a cotton exhibition. 
And basically, he's there to argue why white people should keep using black labor. Remember, um, immigrants had come in. Mostly the immigrants were not considered fully white yet. And basically, he says, look, I'm not here to challenge segregation. He says, black Americans, white Americans, we work together like the fingers on a hand. We are separate, but we're connected. He's basically saying, you know, African Americans and white Americans, we're not meant to be together. We're not meant to intermix. But, you know, we have our own different roles. And he says African Americans are going to have the role of being, you know, kind of the grunt labor, um, pushing the mop buckets around, you know, doing the farming, doing the agricultural dirty work. And basically we can become the most reliable basis of that we possibly can. And then we're going to lead that, you know, lean upon that for later social acceptance. But he's mainly saying, I'm okay with segregation. This gets a lot of white people in the South interested. In fact, he takes a lot of money from people who would otherwise be considered segregationist. Because in a sense, hell, even white supremacist. Because in a sense, he is not talking about challenging segregation. Not at all. And the Tuskegee machine is what he kind of builds up over time. He builds this up over time with the Tuskegee machine. Basically, his influence is huge. It's ironic because he told people don't mess with politics. Um, he did. He, he definitely messed with politics. Even though African Americans aren't voting that much in the South, which is where he's based, he's a national figure. You know, he's comfortable giving speeches in New York and Chicago um, in D.C. He's very influential in D.C., very influential in the uh, black press of the time period. Uh, you know, candidates he support tend to do pretty well. Uh, for instance, in the election of 1896, one of the most important elections you've never heard about, uh, William Jennings Bryan versus William McKinley, uh, Booker T. Washington puts his weight behind William McKinley. Now, that's not too surprising because, you know, he's a Republican, uh, William McKinley's a Republican. Most African Americans do vote Republican in this time period. But there was a chance with um, William Jennings Bryan to really change America for, for poor people. Uh, the Free Solar Platform was going to really help farmers, of which African Americans make up a very large percent of agricultural workers in the South. And yet, Booker T. Washington, who, remember, most black people can't vote in the South, he puts his weight behind William McKinley, which is kind of an interesting choice right there. Uh, he also gets along really well with Franklin, with Theodore Roosevelt. Not Franklin Roosevelt. If you go one more, you're talking about what happens with old Teddy Roosevelt and, um, and Booker T. Washington. A um, lot, of, lot of things that uh, he does. Most notably, Booker T. Washington is the first black man to be invited to the White House for dinner. Uh, that's probably the, you know, that's, that's the thing that Booker T. Washington can hang his hat upon, is that he is the first black man to ever be invited to the White House for dinner. That is a huge deal in this time period. He gets to go through the front door. Uh, you know, it's still the South. D.C.'s you know, sandwiched between Maryland and Virginia. This is still the South. Uh, D.C. is a segregated city. There is Jim Crow in D.C., and yet Booker T. Washington is able to go to the front door of the White House and have a dinner with the President of the United States. And he and, he and Roosevelt actually consulted quite a bit uh, Roosevelt felt Booker T. Washington was like his, his white li sorry, his black liaison, basically his, his, you know, I don't want to say president of black America because Teddy Roosevelt was so egotistical. He thought of himself as president of all the America because he was, but he viewed 
and I don't want to say equal either, but you know, there was definitely a sense of um, camaraderie between Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington. He was very behind the scenes, as I said before, never directly challenges white supremacy. I, I, I should... Uh, I, I should also, you know, really, really say that. That is one of the main criticisms that Booker D. Washington gets, is that he doesn't do that much to challenge white supremacy. Now, to be fair, he is donating tons of money behind the scenes to organizations that are challenging white supremacy. However, Booker D. Washington feels he can get more money, make more friends, by saying, hey, you know what, I'm cool with white supremacy, it's all right. Kind of being a more conservative face. Now, is there opposition to Washington? Yes, there is. Who oh boy is there. A lot of people don't like Washington because he is very conciliatory towards race. Uh, things like the Afro-American leave in 1889, they want to challenge white supremacy much more defiantly. Uh, likewise, you have the Niagara Movement. The Niagara Movement is based around Niagara Falls, New York. Uh, they, want, they want to be more direct in challenging white supremacy in ways that they can. Um, William Monroe Trotter, who's the editor of the Boston Guardian, black editor, basically challenges Washington for being a bit of an, I, don't, I, don't, I hate to use the word Uncle Tom, but uh, there's a lot within the African-American community who feel that Booker T. Washington is just not doing enough for the race. Now, Washington would argue that, hey, yes, I am. I'm being more practical, you know, um, it's hard to challenge white supremacy. They outnumber us. They're economically more powerful than we are. We're not given that much of a role. The best thing we can do is just take this role. It's a crappy role, but you know what? We're going to do what we can. Now, if one person really, really, really uh, exemplified opposition to Washington, it'd be this next dude. You know him. You love him. If you don't know him and love him, you're about to know him and love him. He shows up in my book quite a bit. Mr. William Edward Beauregard Du Bois, or actually Du Bois. He's very particular about it. It's Du Bois, but I always call him Du Bois and I mess up, but it's Du Bois. Uh, du Bois is a very, very, very interesting dude. He's a very interesting dude. Uh, he is one of the most famous black thinkers of his time period. Strong opposition to Washington. His upbringing could not be more completely different than Washington's. Uh, du Bois is from Massachusetts. He is the product of a mixed-race couple. He has never been a slave. He was never a slave one day in his life. Um, although he is half black, half white, uh, he doesn't really experience that much racism in Massachusetts. Uh, kind of grows up in a very, you know, middle to upper-class family, pretty well-to-do, He's very intelligent, very eloquent, very well-read, very well-written. He, he is one of our most famous writers, uh, probably the most famous African-American writer of this time period, any philosopher, thinker, that sort of thing. Uh, goes to college in Fisk University in, uh, in Nashville. He becomes the first black man to get a PhD from Harvard. Um, and he's, he's... The main criticism of Du Bois is that he is full of himself. Uh, like he's intelligent, and he knows he's intelligent. I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody like that. But like whenever he graduated from Harvard, he said the honor was all Harvard's. Um, du Bois is an interesting guy because he can dish it out, and he can take it. Like He puts up, but he also can back it up. Like He will say some things, but he is... 
he is more intelligent than you. Like, like that, that, I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but like he, he he's smarter than you, and he knows he's smarter than you, and like you're not on his level, so he'll listen to you, but like you're you're nothing compared to him. That's the boys, and he, like I said, he. <laughs> He knows he's a smart cookie, and that, that sometimes rubs people the wrong way. And he's also very much an activist, and he kind of exemplifies this uh, criticism of Washington. Because he, if anything else, he does not like Washington for, like, gradualism. You know, he says, yo, Washington, you're pretty much an Uncle Tom. You're pretty much doing whatever the white people want you to do. You're not challenging things. You know, we've been in this country, African Americans have been in this country for 200 and something years now, getting close to 300 years now. What has changed? Nothing. You know, if they weren't going to do it in the past 300 years, what makes you think that they're going to do it now? This is, this is being ridiculous. Uh, likewise, he doesn't think that this type of education is very good. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, this type of normal education, you're just going to have like an entire generation of African Americans who can just push, push a mob around. He said, what if we have a black Mozart? What if we have like a, a black scientist, a, a black Louis Pasteur? What if there's these like amazing black thinkers that are out there that they need to have access to the best of everything? Uh, Washington is doing the best he can with his colleges, but Du Bois is like, look, the, the education's not as good. Like you simply don't have the resources. Why should we make the black Harvard when there's a regular Harvard that black people should go to? Like I went to. By the way, did I mention I go to Harvard? I'm W.B. Du Bois, and I will definitely let you know. Uh, he writes his first big book is The Souls of Black Folks. Uh, this slide says it's just a formal attack on Washington. It's way more than that. If you ever read it, it's a lot more about like philosophy and kind of a sociological impact of African Americans. Basically saying how he views that African Americans have a dual consciousness. Like, they're both African and American. They, they cannot divorce themselves from their blackness. Like, they are, they are Africans, and they are black, but they're also Americans. And this kind of dual consciousness, this dual worlds they live in, it just kind of makes them exemplar. He also popularizes, but does not invent, the term the Talented Tenth. Uh, basically, he says that, look, the upper 10% of African Americans, like the most intelligent, well-read um, you know, the, the best, the elite, the creme de la creme of black folks need to have the exact same uh, access to education and opportunity as the top 10 white people. He just says that's the way it should be. You know, why would you take a genius and give him a mop bucket? That might be good for 90% of the African-American population who may not be all that smart, but you know what? We can't make the 10 people do that. And by the way, I'm W.B. Du Bois. I'm definitely part of the top 10% because I went to Harvard. I'm a, I'm a genius man. And the thing is, yes, I'm making him sound a little bit like an asshole, but he's smart. He's very smart, very talented, very adept. I mean, you can't hate the guy because he he's not... It's not bragging when you can do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... I don't know, like, watching Michael Jordan talk trash. Like, okay, yeah, you're talking trash, Michael Jordan, but by God, you're Michael Jordan, and you can do that stuff. Absolutely. If you can see a picture of him, absolutely. Now, Du Bois is one of the key figures of the Niagara Movement. Uh, the Niagara Movement actually started about voting rights. It actually started about voting rights. Uh, basically, they want to end segregation. They also want to have better schools, better health care. They want to get rid of all sorts of things that... Um, 
you know, ha- had befallen African Americans. Uh, it is a mixed race group. It is a mixed race group, but it's. It is, I should mention the Niagara movement itself is actually a bit of a failure because it never actually gets anything. Never actually gets anything. Howard Dubois is part of it. Dubois is part of it. If you go over more, you'll see the picture of him. He's uh, second from the right in the middle row. There he is. Uh, the the Viagra the, the Viagra movement. Woo! The Niagara movement later on kind of morphs into what becomes known as the NAACP. Uh, I should also mention, if you go over one slide, Booker D. Washington hates it. Uh, Booker D. Washington hates the Niagara Movement. He basically uses his Tuskegee machine to criticize it. Basically says, you know, this is just so elitist. Um, It's never going to work. He even tries to, like, use the federal government to fire people that are supporting the Niagara Movement. You know, if they support him, he doesn't like the Niagara Movement. He thinks it's basically setting people up for a failure. He's like, look, this is never going to happen. You know, this is just too highfalutin, too elitist. We're never going to get equal rights like this, you know, this very confrontational way. We should become more gradual. Uh, Later on, though, this is... uh, um, Dubois later helps form. He's never the main leader, but he's probably the main spokesperson. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. This is one of the most important organizations in African-American history. We're talking about the 20th century. The NAACP is one of the most important organizations, period. Uh, Founded in 1909, no direct link to the Niagara Movement. Uh, The keyword there is direct. Uh, It's a much more highly focused version. Uh, The Niagara Movement was talking a lot of different things. Uh, You know, how to get all these things done. We want equal rights in all these places. They don't really have a tactic to do it. The NAACP is pretty dead set from the beginning about we need racial justice, and they need to do this through the court system. And I should also mention the NAACP is very much a white organization in the sense that you have white people in the leadership. Um, Oswald Garrison Villiard is one of the guys who helps found it. Uh, a lot of other people, you know, found it. Idie Bells is black. Mary Church Terrell is black. Dubois, of course, is black. But a lot of the early leadership of the NAACP is white. It's kind of a joint coalition between white and black people to have, you know, the elite best of the black people get the best chance, and we're going to do it through the court system. This is opposed to Washington. Washington's organization, Tuskegee Machine, for its faults and the criticisms, of which there was much, was pretty much black from top to bottom. Uh, NAACP, for the longest time, was viewed as a very white organization with a lot of white people at the top. Um, I'll probably show you his picture in class, but for the longest time in the 20s, the leader of the NAACP was a dude named Walter White, um, who was like one sixteenth black at best. I think he was like maybe a great great grandparent was black. He he looked very white, and you know the the irony is not lost when we talk about Garvey later on. Um, Garvey would call the NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People, uh, specifically light skinned people. Uh, the NAACP for the longest time was viewed as having a very uh, preferential treatment towards light-skinned people. Now, to be fair, that's a lot of African-American society and culture and organizations. Uh, We'll talk about colorism, brown paper bag tests, probably in class. So the NAACP, they want to use the system. They want to use lawsuits. That's the big one. They start using lawsuits. They start using all sorts of different animals to do it. 
Uh, their first big win is Ginn versus the U.S. That's an Oklahoma case. Overturns the grandfather clause. Gets rid of the grandfather clause in Oklahoma. Has it declared unconstitutional. I'm going to talk about this later when we get into the civil rights movement, but the NAACP is the definition of a top-down civil rights organization. They want to change things at the top, change laws, Supreme Court cases, you know, change the Constitution, and then let it trickle down to the bottom. Um, Booker T. Washington, he was once it from like a ground up. They basically changed things on the ground, changed the lowest level of society, and then in time we're going to change those on the top. Well, what's better? Well, we'll talk about that more in class. That's kind of up to you. Now, DuBois would also make a magazine called The Crisis. Uh, this is a pretty important organiz- uh, publication. Um, I, I do need to mention it. It's a literary magazine. Uh, has national distribution. He publishes all sorts of articles. Had to read a bunch of issues of it for my book, so ask me about that in class. Uh, denounces white racism, but also really tries to show that, hey, there is a black literate class. Uh, this is something that DuBois is very insistent upon, you know, with his tentative mythology. is like, we need black people involved in literature and the liberal arts. Have them writing about history. Have them writing about literature. Uh, you know, show that we need to have civil rights through these very eloquent, you know, written articles about it. It also gets used as a propaganda tool. It's about the one thing that uh, Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee machine can't touch. By 1913, shortly after its founding, it has about 30,000 subscribers. And uh, it's one of the more important um, vessels of black resistance in this time period, particularly with elite people. So, Washington versus the NAACP. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there's some fights here. It gets personal, too, sometimes between Du Bois and... Uh, and uh, and Washington. A lot of NAACP leaders despise Washington. They basically think he's an Uncle Tom. He's somebody who's too conciliatory towards race. Um, he doesn't really like it very much. Uh, to be fair, Washington's people don't like the NAACP. Uh, he said he, it's viewed that he's trying to subvert the NAACP. Uh, he also doesn't like Du Bois. He like uh, he thinks Du Bois is a puppet for white people. Uh, refuses to debate him. That's one thing that Dubois is like, please debate me. If you think you're so great, debate me. Uh, mainly because Dubois would wipe the floor with him. Um, because Dubois is like, I'm the smartest man alive. I can destroy you. And, and also, he does manipulate white supremacists to damage the NAACP. We'll talk about the weird relationship between some of these black, um, you know, black civil rights groups and, and like the Klan later on when we talk about Marcus Garvey. Now, there could be more that happens between Washington and um, the boys. However, Booker T. Washington dies of 19, in 1915 of a heart attack very suddenly. Uh, du Bois lives until the 1960s. He's around for forever. So, But we'll talk about them more. Uh, you also have the Urban League. Uh, the Urban League is now talking about what's going on with African Americans in the cities. Uh, founded in New York, uh, black and white progressives together. They want to improve housing, medical care, recreational facilities for everybody, not just black folks. Not just black folks, but they are willing to talk about black folks as well. They do do things when it comes to black areas of big cities. They're primarily interested in the plight of cities, though. Uh, should talk about black women for a hot second. Black women, of course, they are getting involved in these various organizations, various organizations uh, most of these organizations don't reallow women. Um, Booker D. Washington, his Tuskegee, it was a very segregated school. 
Women couldn't take certain classes. Likewise, a lot of his organizations, they weren't keen about, uh, you know, women getting involved. In fact, Booker T. Washington actually was okay with women never getting the right to vote. Uh, de Blas was a little bit more egalitarian. Still, NAACP is seen as a boys' club. So black women kind of do their thing, and they just make their own organizations. If they're not allowed in these organizations, that's fine. We'll make their own. Uh, a lot of key gossip clubs. Uh, they want to. It, it's very much in this progressive era uh, women's auxiliary mindset. Basically, a lot of different organizations in this time period have a women's version of it. Uh, they start looking more towards community issues in the 1890s. A uh, lot of different organizations. The you know the women, the National Association of the Colored Women uh, is one of these organizations. Likewise, you have the Phyllis Wheatley Club. It's theoretically a, a literary group for black women to get involved with. Um, some of them either YWCA's, things like that. Uh, they're different organizations. Uh, they're also pretty interested in women's suffrage. I should mention that the 19th Amendment does divide uh, black and white supporters. Now, some people, some white women are not okay with, uh, with black women getting the right to vote. However, black suffragists are a part of this too. And so in 1919, whenever the 19th Amendment is passed, uh, black women get the right to vote too. Hooray for them. Uh, however, as we've, if, if you haven't guessed, it's going to be very easily squashed in places like the South. Likewise, it seems a very elite thing to do. Speaking of elite African-Americans, Let's talk about the African-American elite in this time period. Uh, it's not a huge group by any stretch of the imagination, but we do want to talk about them for a second because they do exist. Uh, they're worth talking about. Uh, things like the, the American Negro Academy, 1897 to 1928, is kind of a form for black intellectuals, very much in this talented 10th mindset that uh, Booker T. Wa uh, sorry, Du Bois is really wanting for African-Americans. Uh, the upper class African Americans, they do exist. They do exist in the North. You have industrialists. Uh, a lot of these people are lighter skinned people, but they're still black. Uh, very, very status conscious. I should iterate that. Uh, now that you're having African Americans who are more likely to go to college, uh, get jobs, becomes things like doctors and lawyers, uh, you know, black professionals, they're operating within a Jim Crow system where basically black people can't go to white doctors or go to like white lawyers or white bankers. So you have the black version of it, and you have a very growing, wealthy African-American upper and middle class that is very class conscious. Remember, the, the idea in the United States for most of this time is that black equals low class, and so these individuals want to do everything they possibly can to iterate they are high class, making it very exclusive organizations. For instance, fraternities and sororities. Uh, that should not be... Shocking. <laughs> Alpha Phi Alpha is the first black fraternity, which was started in 18, um, was, sorry, in 1906 at, at Cornell University, uh, which is basically an Ivy League school that was allow allowing black men in. Two years later, the first African-American sorority, Alpha Alpha Alpha, was founded at Howard University, which is an HBCU. Now, African-American fraternities and sororities nowadays are a little bit more everybody can join, but at first they were very, very elite in the class element of it. Uh, just like regular fraternities and sororities were in this time period. I cannot iterate. It's not until the 1940s that college becomes seen as the norm for pretty much most Americans, little, middle, you know, upper, middle, and lower class Americans. 
have the opportunity to go to college. Uh, before the 1940s, college is just for the elite of the elite of the elite. And so, of course, it makes perfect sense they're going to make their own Greek organizations. A uh, couple of different African-American inventors, part of this black elite, new ones. Shelby Davidson, a Harvard lawyer, actually has a patent that fed uh, paper to adding machines. Uh, actually gets denied a joint patent with a white person because they're like, nope, the white person needs to get it. Uh, Granville Lewis is another one. Sorry, Granville Woods is another one. Uh, his interesting thing is he actually kind of did a telegraph before Edison, and Edison kind of copied it. And he's one of the few that actually beat Thomas Edison in a patent thing. Uh, Edison was prolific at making patents. Not necessarily inventing stuff, but making patents. Uh, if you go with another one, that's Lewis Latimer. Latimer. He does stuff with light bulbs. He, he does not invent the light bulb. He, Edison does. That's one of the few things Edison does invent. However, uh, basically, Latimer improves upon it, writes books upon it, actually invents the carbon uh, filaments for light bulbs. I believe beforehand, uh, Edison used tungsten, Latimer's able to figure out a way to do it with carbon, which is a lot easier to do. Uh, when a black person could vote, which wasn't forever, which wasn't always, which was rarely, actually, uh, they tended to vote Republican. They tended to vote Republican, particularly on the presidential level. Uh, the Republican Party was called the Party of Lincoln because, you know, Lincoln was the one who freed the slaves, theoretically. Although we talked, Lincoln was a much more complicated figure. And that was like 50 years prior. Yes, occasionally black voters were given a federal job every once in a while, but that wasn't the norm. That wasn't the norm. Uh, fairly often, though, they do get punished for the color of their skin, even though they are voting black Republicans. Uh, key instance of this is the Brownsville incident in 1906. Basically, uh, Brownsville is a city in Texas. There was an incident involving black soldiers. Uh, it was actually kind of blown out of proportion. Teddy Roosevelt, without, you know, consulting with the black soldiers to find out that they're innocent or and against the advice of Booker T. Washington, actually dismisses all the black soldiers with dishonorable discharges, even though they were innocent of the crime. Uh, this is seen as a betrayal of African Americans by Roosevelt. In fact, after he stops being president, Roosevelt said he actually regrets this decision because it really ruins his um, camaraderie he has with Washington and other African Americans. Likewise, William Howard Taft, William Howard Taft, in 19, uh, who gets elected in 1908, he's a Republican, but he's actually okay with all the various Jim Crow things going on in the South. Uh, there are challenges on the federal level, but Taft's like, you know what, I don't really care. Uh, let the South do its own thing. I don't want to mess around with it. Uh, still, a lot of African Americans felt that the Republican Party was the only party in town. Uh, some tried to get involved in the Progressive Party in the 1912 election, which was a bonkers election. I talk about more in my regular uh, history class. Uh, they are not allowed. They are not allowed to be part of the Progressive Party, which is a bit of a, uh, well, a bit of a switch. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is the guy who's running for president as a Democrat in 1912. Uh, De Bois and other African-American leaders like, hey, maybe we should go with Wilson. You know, he's, a, he's another smart guy. Uh, they think he's going to become like a reformer because he was a reformer governor of New Jersey. He's a scholar. Problem is, Booker, uh, not Booker D. Washington, but Woodrow Wilson is actually really racist. Like, super racist. Like, 
even for the time, once he becomes president, he's considered racist. Uh, he was born uh, in, in Virginia, but raised in like South and North Carolina, that kind of border area between the two. Uh, right after Reconstruction, he was actually born like right before the Civil War. He remembered Reconstruction fairly vividly. Uh, he is actually a strong believer in racial separation and also white supremacy. He definitely believes that African Americans are lesser. So he's okay with segregation. And he's okay with federal buildings and agencies being super segregated. And he kind of says, oh, no, 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 I'm not necessarily racist, even though he is super racist. He just thinks like, you know what, if we just keep the races separate, we won't have any conflict. You know, I'm just doing this to stop people from fighting from all the friction. Uh, now, when World War I happens, I'll talk about this kind of quickly. Uh, they Black men do get involved in World War I. Um, however, there's kind of a reoccurring trend when it comes to African Americans in warfare. They're not really viewed as uh, combat soldiers, all right? They're not really viewed as combat soldiers. White people think that, number one, maybe black people are too stupid to learn how to take orders, or number two... Um, if we're really being hard depressing these people uh, and we're giving them guns and teaching them how to kill, could this backfire on this? Still, interestingly enough, um, General Pershing, who's the main general for America during World War I, his nickname is Blackjack, uh, Blackjack Pershing. He gets a name because he actually uh, got his start commanding black uh, soldiers. Uh, in this time period, black people were not allowed to be officers and all, uh, white people had to be the officers in command of these various units. Uh, Pershing is one of these guys. Uh, at first, it's kind of viewed as a kiss of death to get in charge of black units. However, Pershing's like, no, they're really good, and he trains them really well. And so he's... Okay, I, I'm not going to say he's egalitarian when it comes to race, but he's about the best friend African-Americans have in the military. But still, World War I is not cool with having African-Americans be in... Uh, officers. Uh, you do have about 10,000 black members of the uh, army in this time period. About 5,000 people in the Navy. The Navy's always been pretty cool for African Americans. They're pretty okay with African Americans. Uh, pretty much stevedores, which is a job you've probably never heard of, but it's like a longshoreman. That's a job in the Navy that's been exclusively, almost exclusively black since like George Washington and like America was founded. Still, most African Americans in the war did not have very good jobs. These are not very, I don't want to say glamorous job because it's the army and you die and stuff, but they're not really combat jobs, not very high prestige jobs. They serve as waiters, kitchen attendants, uh, strokers for fire, things like that. You also have the Marine Corps. Uh, the Marine Corps does not allow black people, period, into discussion. It's not until after World War II that the Marines start allowing black people, and they do it kicking and screaming. Um, the Marines are super racist in this time period, super segregated. Now, the issue we have is black officers, because that's a scary thing. Black officers are something that African Americans have wanted for a very long time. They think, you know, you need to have us in more elite positions. Officers command men. You know, we have, the, we have people perfectly capable at it. NWCV, of course, is very behind this idea. One of the first ones is Charles Young. Charles Young, he's, he, he serves in World War I. He is a black officer. The problem you find is that white people don't want to take orders from a black man. 
in the discussion. Like, the idea of a black person having a superior role. I mean, if you know the military, the military is all about hierarchy and superiority, and like, you know, who's, who's below who, who's above who. Uh, a lot of white people are not okay with having a black officer. Ultimately, Young does retire. Uh, the military doesn't want to really use African Americans in combat. Uh, of the 38,000, sorry, 380,000 that are drafted, only about 42,000 get, you know, combat training. They don't get that much. Uh, most of them are sort of as stevedores, construction, you know, laborers, kitchen workers. However, you do have the 369th. You do have the 369th, uh, which is the Harlem Hellfighters, probably the most famous black unit. Uh, basically, the U.S. would not want to use black troops as combat troops. But they told their allies, look, if y'all want to use black troops for combat troops, you can. To which France was like, uh, y'all mean y'all got fresh troops? And America's like, yeah, but they're black. And, America's like, and France is like, we don't care. We've been fighting for four years. Uh, we just need troops. 369th, super well-known, super you know, famous. Uh, they don't give up any land in World War I whatsoever. Uh, several of the members get the Croix de Grue, which is the French War Cross, kind of the French version of the Medal of Honor. Very well known, very famous. So they are fighting World War I. Still, Dubois, uh, he, he, he really wanted the war to be a chance where African Americans could prove their patriotism. He thought that white America would respect these veterans, you know, respect the idea that they fought in this war. They show their patriotism, that they're loyal to America. They're not trying to overthrow America. They're not secret communists. Oh, by the way, get used to being African-Americans being called communists because that happens from now till the end of the semester. However, he finds very, very realistically, very, very blatantly, that uh, white America is not cool with that. Uh, most white Americans after, you know, after the war, during the war, they still hold to their own racist ideas. Probably the, the most damning statistic I can give you is that in 1919, there, no less than 10 African Americans were lynched in uniform. I'll repeat that. They lynched people in uniform, like people who had come back from a war for America. You know, America has its faults, but in general, America tends to like their veterans, even if they don't like the war very much. And by the way, people loved World War I. Uh, you know, people tend to like their veterans, you know, thank you for your service, stuff like that. Uh, basically, you have veterans get lynched for being uppity. Basically, you know, in France, they learned, hey, there's no segregation here. Uh, black soldiers were allowed to eat and do whatever they want, you know, along white soldiers. The French accepted them as just soldiers. They're like, hey, you're awesome. Hooray for you. They come back to the United States. There's a new rave of racial violence. Tons of racial violence happens in this time period. And it gets really super violent actually after World War I. Uh, some rights you might want to know about. Uh, Atlanta in 1906, basically, uh, white mob starts attacking white residents in, uh, in Atlanta. A lot of it has to do with this idea that basically Atlanta is a growing city. Uh, a lot of you know, black people are coming in, kind of upsetting the racial order that had been in Atlanta. Basically, black people are tortured and killed because of this. Uh, Dubois calls for violent reaction to this. Remember, Dubois, Dubois is the more radical one. Uh, Dubois is the more, the more radical one. 
Uh, Washington actually wants more reconciliation. Remember, he's viewed as the more um, conciliatory, you know, Uncle Tom-esque, if you want to go that route. Uh, the Committee of Safety was formed with black and white leaders. They try to make things better. Never actually happens. Likewise, there's another one in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, yet another one happens in East St. Louis. Uh, this is a labor strike. Basically, black laborers were brought in to replace white workers. Uh, black workers were often brought in as strike breakers because black people tended not to join a union, and they also tended <coughs> to work for lower wages. Uh, basically, an angry white mob basically gets involved in East St. Louis. Uh, basically, they kill 35 black people. Eight white people are killed. Uh, NAACP actually files a report about this. They report on the massacre. And they actually do protests about this massacre in New York City. They said, look, you know, all this violence, are, you know, it's, it's race being exasperated by labor. A lot of race riots. Uh, let's see. Houston's another big one. Basically, a black soldier is beaten and jailed for helping a black woman beaten by a police officer. Hey, police violence. That's another thing that you're going to hear a lot about in Afro-American history. In response to this, about 100 soldiers, black soldiers, uh, mounted assault on this police station. White people and Mexican people were killed. Uh, black soldiers were executed and arrested. Well, arrested and executed for doing this. Then we get to the big two. Then we get to the big two. The big one is Chicago. The big one is Chicago. Chicago in 1919. Chicago, more than any other place, had exploded in population due to the Great Migration, which we're going to talk about in just a second, because the Great Migration is what exasperates all this stuff. Chicago is theoretically a place where there is no Jim Crow segregation, but, and this is a big old but, it does have very strict boundaries in terms of neighborhoods. Uh, Chicago is often called the city of neighborhoods. It has no, like, formal Jim Crow segregation, but, like, various neighborhoods in Chicago definitely had an ethnic bent. And it wasn't just black and white. It was like, you know, this is where the Lithuanians live. This is where the Irish live. This is where the Italians live. This is where all these different little ethnicities live in Chicago. And the problem is the city of Chicago was growing too fast. They weren't building new resources. They weren't building new resources. They weren't building new housing. It was, you know, it was, there was a little bit of a lag. And so there was competition in housing between black and white people. In addition, there was job competition between black and white people, with black people being hired as strike breakers against white workers. So in, on July 17, 1919, a day after black troops were welcomed home to Chicago in a little welcome home parade for all the soldiers from World War I, a kid by the name of Eugene Williams, young kid, I believe he's 14 years old, he is swimming in Lake Michigan. And he swims into the white section. Now, this is not a formal section. There's no white-only sign. There's no ropes in the middle. He is just literally swimming in Lake Michigan. Basically, white people start don't like this. They start throwing rocks, then a brick. One of them hits him. He drowns. His death sits on a week of violence that basically leaves 23 people killed that are black, 15 that are white, 500 injured, and about 1,000 are homeless. They even send in the National Guard. So, like, soldiers who had been fighting in France in World War I are now trying to keep the peace in um, Chicago. This was the big, big one. This was the big one. This was the biggest race riot in America for quite a while until the Watts riot. Until the Watts riot. But then, the one you've heard about, the one that you really hear nowadays, the Tulsa riot of 1921. 
This is the one that you've heard about mainly because, well, <laughs> yeesh. <laughs> it's become more famous lately. Uh, Watchmen, and also people hadn't really heard of it before. But basically, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oklahoma is one of those places where you have segregation, but you also have black and white towns. Uh, in segregation, you can have more elite classes come together. And so there's a section of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street. Basically, it's the area where like black people had like middle and upper class stuff. They had stores, they had movie theaters, all sorts of neat things. So there was a rumor that a black man by the name of Dick Rowland had sexually assaulted a white woman elevator operator. And here's the thing. Uh, the assault gets way more vague as time goes on. At first, it's like, oh, he raped her. Then it's like, well, he lifted up his skirt. Uh, then it was like, oh, he like touched her leg. Then it's like, then he like nodded at her. It, it, it just keeps getting lesser and lesser. But still, there was a rumor that basically he was going to be lynched uh, to protect them. Basically, black men basically assembled at the jail where he was being held. And then white people were there too. Uh, basically, what ends up happening is a huge assault on this one neighborhood on Black Wall Street. Uh, about 300 black people died, about 20 white people died. Uh, probably one of the worst episodes of civilian violence in the United States, pretty much until September 11th. Like, there was even airplanes that were used. Uh, some, some white person had a crop duster, and he was, like, dropping firebombs from the air. This was, like, the first time the United States had ever been bombed in U.S. history. Uh, pretty much burns it to the ground. Burns it to the ground. You can see, there we go, there's a picture of it. Uh, the Greenwood neighborhood, also known as Black Wall Street, uh, in Tulsa, basically in 1921 in June. Tons of race riots happening. And one of the reasons why it's happening is because of the Great Migration. A lot of different factors are pushing people towards migration and pulling them towards migration, too. Uh, the biggest push is Jim Crow. Uh, people don't like Jim Crow racism. Who'd have thunk? The pull? Jobs. Basically, these industrial jobs, they have job recruiters coming down from places like Chicago, from Cleveland, from Detroit, saying, hey, black person, how's it going? Uh, I know you're a sharecropper. I know you're working the land. But you know what? Let me tell you about a magical place called Chicago where you can earn more money and there's no segregation. Now, there is segregation, just not legal segregation. Also, the South had gone through some agricultural failures. There was a bold weevil crop that killed the cotton crop. The 19-teens were not great by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, yes, there are labor shortages in World War I. That's probably the big one is that, you know, World War I, a lot of uh, industrial workers, you know, go to the army, white industrial workers. Somebody has to work for it, so they start going for black workers. The big reason they want to leave, though, they want to get out of the South. They want to get out of the South. Now, where do they go? Mm, a lot of them go to the Midwest. A lot of them go to the Midwest. Places like D.C., uh, New York, Philadelphia, that's, that's where, you know, you already have black populations. Uh, but a lot of them go to places where you don't have black populations before. Places like Chicago, which is why we have the riots. Places like Detroit, which is why we later on have a riot. Uh, places like Cleveland, which we never had a riot in, but eh, it's Cleveland. Uh, and so once they get to these places, you can if you go over one more, you're going to see this kind of how these cities just explode in terms of their black population. Um, some cities have like, you know, triple digit growth, like Gary, Indiana. Oh my gosh. Uh, Gary, Indiana is in the Chicago suburbs. In 1910, you have 383 black people. 
By 1920, you have 5,000 black people. Like, all these towns in the Midwest, they just explode in terms of their black population. Uh, Detroit is another example. Detroit is probably one of the biggest ones. Uh, Same thing with Chicago. Uh, Now, once they get to these places, yes, there is no Jim Crow segregation. Like, it's not in law, but it is very informal. Uh, Basically, they only let black people be in certain neighborhoods, later called ghettos. Uh, The term ghetto actually comes from Jewish areas of of Venice, like in Italy. But go figure, the ghetto. And actually, to this day, believe it or not, northern cities tend to be more segregated informally than southern cities. Kind of this legacy of this African-Americans getting through these places, doing these job, you know, pushes, and only being allowed to go to certain neighborhoods. Uh, You can see the numbers right there. It really starts going from the 1920s. Explodes in the 1940s and 50s because of World War II. Uh, Black people are leaving the South, period. Uh, Black people don't start really going West until World War II. That's when they go to places like Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, uh, Milwaukee, places like that. But really, the 19-teens, World War I, is really where we talk about African Americans being a primarily rural Southern phenomenon to a more urban Northern phenomenon. Another map where you just see people leave the South. Pretty much rural black people are leaving the South left and right. Um, like I said, the segregation is usually less overt in the North, but still very much there. Uh, Southern Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, they were not officially Jim Crow, but oh my gosh, yeah, they were. Chicago, as I mentioned earlier, it had some things that were good for black people. They had black policemen, black hospitals. Uh, However, there were racial issues that exasperated because of finances. Remember, finances and race often go hand in hand. Harlem also really becomes a thing of this time period. Uh, We're talking about more later when we talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, Basically, before this time, Harlem was viewed as a very white area of, of actually a very Dutch area of, of New York City, of Manhattan. However, because of overbuilt uh, basically, it becomes the black area. Basically, uh, they built more apartments than they needed. And so basically, white landlord was like, okay, we wouldn't, we wouldn't rent to blacks otherwise, but because we have so many apartments lying around, all right, we'll rent to African-Americans. Uh, basically, you start having more African-Americans in Harlem, and then black churches become major property owners in Harlem. That's where Harlem becomes viewed as an African-American neighborhood in New York. Uh, families are kind of strained by this, I, I should mention. Some stay in the South, some go up North. Uh, still, most black families survived intact. Uh, I, I should mention that most African-American families are two-parent families in this time period, North or South. Uh, most people leave for better families, uh, for better lives for their families. A key example I know from my research is Barry Gordy. Uh, Barry Gordy, the guy who founded Motown Records, still alive, nice dude too. His dad, Barry Gordy Sr., who was actually Barry Gordy Jr., because Barry Gordy is Barry Gordy III, but he's mainly called Barry Gordy Jr. Anywho, Barry Gordy's dad was actually a landowner in Georgia. He actually had a good bit of land, but he sold and moved to Detroit because the Klan was harassing his family. And he's like, you know what? Um, I can go to Detroit and I could like live better for my family. And so he brings his entire family with him. This is not one of those immigrant things. Most immigrant groups... Uh, they always send like the dude over to like build up money and then go back to their home t- uh, to their home country. Uh, you know th- that's not unusual to people to move around because of jobs. 
What's unusual is that these African Americans are wanting to stay. African Americans are leaving the South. The rural population of the South, the, the rural African American population of the South, is decimated, and it never comes back. It never comes back. So in all, I know this is a long one. We talked about Booker T. Washington, uh, the Atlantic Compromise. You know, basically the idea that the races are separate, but they're fingers, so they can work together. You also have Du Bois, Du Bois, Niagara Movement, basically a bit more radical, strong opposition to Washington, NAACP, and the town to 10th. Military service, it was coming a little bit long, a bit more for African Americans. But you also have the Great Migration, which also causes race riots. So as I said, this is a time of flux for African Americans. They're really challenging white supremacist system. And as we're going to see as we get into the 20s, things actually change. But with that, that's Dr. Tully for History 311. See y'all later.